Hey everybody, it is episode 64 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Steve is with me. Hey Steve. Hello podcast world. We are super excited to have a returning guest today. Alec Hut- Alex Hutchinson is on our episode 48 guest to talk about his new book, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Steve and I both jumped on it right away and got it read pretty quickly and both agree that this is definitely a must read. If you like our podcast, you will definitely like Alex's book, but we'll definitely give you a teaser with our interview here today talking about some of the elements of the book with Alex in just a second. Super excited to have him on. Before we get to that interview, we've got to talk current events as we always do. And this time, Steve, we've got to talk Tokyo Marathon Recap. Happened this past weekend. I got to watch the feed through NBC Sports Gold. I bit the bullet and bought the year's worth of access. <laughs> so for $80 between yep. now and December, I have I have access to all things NBC Sports, which for better or for worse. Is that going to get you, uh, y- you know, European race, track, ra- track and field races? Diamond League races. Oh, it it's worth it then. Other marathon uh, feeds. Yep. You'll so get Berlin next year. You'll get yep. Chicago. you get New York. You get, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as I was looking at it, 80 bucks is a small price to pay for all of that. To be a fan. Especially because I wanted to see the Tokyo feed, and that seemed to be the only way. I got on the Japanese website to try to watch it, but then it would kept cutting off. So <laughs> anyway, I just bit the bullet and invested in my sports track and field fandom for the year. So let's talk about Tokyo. We'll start with the women's field. We've obviously previewed this because Amy Hastings Crag, as I predicted, had a chance to win, but she didn't get the win. She got on the podium, finished third in a PR by over five minutes. Yeah, it's crazy. And is now the fifth American all time. Her time, 221 and change, puts her behind only... Dina Castor, Jordan Assay, Shalane Flanagan, and Janone Benoit Samuelson. A list of running royalty for American distance running for women. So, pretty, pretty awesome result for her. She went out, she got what she wanted, which was a big PR. And I would imagine she also got, for those that watched the race or had some experience looking at it, or maybe seeing some of the replays at the end, she also learned a few things about herself. Yes, I think in she those went. Final miles. She went deep into the suitcase of courage. <laughs> they came through halfway on pace for a, a 220, 30 or so, and so she ended up with a slight positive split, just over a minute positive split, but was probably in over her head a little bit and knew it early on, but had to be in order to be in the mix for the win, and because there was just a massive pack running with her of not only the elite women but also the elite men or some of the elite men or at least sub elite men on the the marathon side because it was a mass start for for both men and women there was no separate female start so anyway so she had this massive pack and had she not gone with that pace she would have been never never you know kind of out of touch and wouldn't have had a chance to get such a big breakthrough day but that meant going out a little faster than maybe she was trained to do and then just digging deep and holding on at the end, which she absolutely did. If you saw the pictures from the finish, it was just her wringing herself inside out. She ended up only third by about 20 seconds or so behind Ruti Aga, who was the pre-race favorite, and they were beat by Burhani Dababa, no relation to Jinzebi 
or Teranesh Dababa, who ended up with a pretty good PR, about 90 seconds PR for her to get under 220 to run a negative split. So as you look at this for Amy, Steve, what do you think it means for her, especially as it pits her now in that discussion with Hesse, Flanagan, and I mean, any of the best? Well, I mean, she's now one of the top women. five. I mean, the names that you're going to list with her who are ahead of her are Dina Castor, Jordan Hesse, Shalane Flanagan, and Joan Benoit Samuelson. I mean, that's pretty elite company. And I think, Craig, um, this was the one of the few things missing from her resume in terms of being a truly elite marathoner was that she just hadn't, you know, at 227, she just hadn't run fast enough for anybody to really. I think everybody was surprised at a world championship finish last year because they just didn't think that that was going to be able to, she was going to be able to roll with it, even though she won our, 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 our U.S. Olympic trials. And even though she was, what, ninth at the Olympic Games, I think, is where she ended up, ninth or so at the Olympic Games. Yeah, and third at World Champs. Yeah, so, I mean, but her third place at World Champs is what was the big shocker, I think, for a lot of people. And she just needed a real resume builder from a time perspective, and I think she got that. I do think there's more there. I mean, that was a beautiful weather race. They had a great, great weather, great conditions. Um, but there's nothing like turning yourself inside out like she did for her to be ready to know what it's going to take to make an Olympic team and then be ready for whatever may happen in the 2020 Olympics. There's a lot of time between now and then, but this was a great foot forward in terms of putting herself in the conversation as a medalist at the Olympic Games in 2020. Yeah, certainly it would put her on the list of favorites for the U.S. trials in advance of that. We don't know what Shalane's going to do, but you got to expect we don't know Jordan what Hesse will do. be there, and Amy Hastings-Cragg will be there as well. So you got to say that those two, if Shalane's not on the line, which she seems to allude that she won't be, then those two would have to be your favorites at this point. The other thing that's interesting to me about that list now, if you look at those top five, is three of them have world championship or Olympic or Olympic level medals in the marathon. Shalane doesn't and Jordan doesn't yet. Right. But Amy Hastings Craig does. I mean, she got it before she got the fast time. So in some ways you could argue that this kind of slots her maybe slightly ahead of Jordan Hesse in terms of resume. Shalane certainly has a resume that speaks for itself and she has an Olympic medal, just not in the marathon. So I don't think, it necessarily puts her ahead of Shalane in terms of this discussion, but I think for overall resume, you got to say Amy maybe slots in behind behind those those four royalty: Dina, Joni, Shalane, then Amy. With Jordan still kind of being in the up and comer as a fast time and a couple podiums for world majors, but not yet a medal in her resume. Uh, she hasn't been had. She hasn't been given a chance, though, either. I True. mean, honestly, since she's True. become, she didn't do the world championships, and so she's been playing with the marathon majors. And you know, it. it I'm I'm really excited. It's a long way out, but the 2020 Olympic trials are going to be amazing to watch on, especially on the women's side. As it's the it, it getting on that team is like making the team in the women's eight. You know, you're like. <laughs> You're fighting, you're going against the very best in the world to see if you can make a world team. <laughs> you know? yep. So, uh, it's going to be stacked. And, and I think Shalane's going to, unless Shal I just think she's going to stay around. I don't know. It, it, it'll, it'll, I think maybe it'll be a lot to do with how many of these other women that you and I have been talking about over the last year 
do show up to be world class marathoners. And if and if there's not enough there, I think she may look at it and say, "Hey, my experience, my passion, assuming she stays passionate enough for it." You know, you know what would happen if she won Boston? Does then it make it more likely for her to run or less likely for her to run? You got to believe less likely. I would agree. I mean, I think if she wins Boston, she'll just That'll she'll just it. say that's it. Yeah. I don't want to work. I don't want to do that much more hard work. I'm finished, you know. But anyway, lots of interesting things. Doesn't take anything away from Amy Hastings Craig's race. Incredibly, inc- incredibly well run race. Incredibly hard fought. Um, and excited to see her and Jordan over the next couple of years as they continue to duke it out for the best woman marathoner yeah. in the Especially U.S. Especially when you throw Molly Huddle in the mix as well. So on the men's side for this Tokyo Marathon, Steve, it was quite interesting. Not the race we expected. You know, both you and I predicted Wilson Kipsang would get the win. Well, we didn't expect him to drop out at 12 kilometers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, we did not. Basically, he made We it. should have. We <laughs> fooled us twice. Never fool us again, right? <laughs> he didn't even make it eight miles before he just walked off the course. It was just so bizarre to me that he did it again in a world major where he quit. And this time even earlier. Way earlier. Time. Yeah. And as I watched him in the pack, it was odd to me that they came through the 10K. I believe it was about 25 seconds slower than world record pace. Now, he had said the day before in the press conference, he held up a sign that said 202.50. That was what his prediction was. He held that up in the press conference. And then to see them not even go out at world record pace at 10K, it wasn't even really close at that point. I mean, they were five seconds off or so, four or five seconds off per mile already at 10K. So they really weren't on pace. And, and that every, course is fast early. You know, it's fast early. And so you would expect them to get out to a nice pace. And then the pace just kept slipping and slipping for those couple of miles before he dropped. And then... You know, I couldn't even see any distress on him. He just, he looked like he was in the pack and then he fell back and then he stopped. He says stomach issues, but. It was cold before too. <laughs> it was I mean, maybe I don't too know. cold for his legs. I'm I don't know. But if you're, if you're Wilson Kip saying at this point, you, you're not putting fear in any competitor. No. And you're really limiting your ability to, I mean, main. So what's he do now? You know, you and I have talked about this offline. What happens? Does he jump into Boston? Well, Boston probably won't take him. Does he jump into London? Will London take him? London probably would, but I'm sure they would make it contingent upon getting across a finish line before you could get a penny. At least I wouldn't give him any money till he got across the finish line. Right. You know, I think that Kip Sang's probably a little afraid of Kipchoge, as well he should be. Um, but, you know, I think Kip Sang, this is just a really crucially bad decision. At least go through 30K on race pace, on goal pay on, on on world record pace and give people a show, you know. So I do agree that something must obviously have been wrong for him to not go for it. But if he lost nerve, ooh, that's that's tough to be in that camp, and where how that's going to play out over other races. And you certainly just gave anybody that races against you so much more energy when it comes to getting on a starting line against you. They don't even worry about you. You know you're. This year, you're 50-50 on finishes in World Marathon majors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Less yeah, than that, good. right? Well, right, yeah. yeah. I mean, at this point, he has DNF two of his last three. Now, he did have the New York result where he got on the podium, but it's just odd to me that he wouldn't make it past eight miles. But it was still an incredibly 
interesting race, Chris. Yes, and really because of the Japanese athletes. Yep. I mean, if you looked at... I mean, Chumba just flat out whipped everybody. I, I mean, he, Dixon Chumba, Kenyon, he won going... To, he I mean, got away. Going away. Yeah, he two, got away and stayed 30. away, whereas the other ones came back. But And there were others that tried to match him, including the Ethiopian Olympic silver medalist, Fayisa Lalisa. We've talked about his story. And, he seems to be finding his way back. That was actually a pretty good result for him, I thought. But Yeah, I agree. And so he's kind of back in his game. But, but the thing is, they had this reward, basically, for the Japanese men. Anybody who could break the national record Japanese national record would get 100 million yen which translates to about 936,000 US dollars so close to a million bucks on the line and Chitara had no fear <laughs> no fear and well he had healthy respect but no fear right yeah and he went <laughs> with that lead group stayed with that lead group and even though he faded a bit at the end faded less than his East African competitors who all kind of came back as they were chasing Chumba, he ended up in second, getting the Japanese national record by five seconds. Wow. 206.11 was his time, beating the previous record of 206.16, earning the million bucks bonus, as well as, I think, other prize money for getting second. And I'm sure lots of bonuses all the way down the line right. in the Japanese system. Not <laughs> to mention the fact that he'll probably never have to buy a meal or a drink Ever. again <laughs> in Japan. I mean, the Japanese were screaming his name, just absolutely screaming his name stride for stride as he was coming through that finish. It's like, you know, how do you, I don't know, it was just incredibly, an incredible race and one that was just, I didn't, I followed it, Chris, I didn't buy the, the, the thing, I was just on Let's Run's um message board refreshing and refreshing and refreshing and refreshing and they were saying just how how crazy uh the the crowds were going for uh shitara that they were just chanting his name i mean it it's a great great day for japanese marathoning and they were it was incredible depth there chris incredible depth i think what they have like like i don't know it was like 10 people fin- go under 210 like 10 americans haven't gone under 210 yeah, they had 600-209, and that's more or at least as many Americans that have ever been under 209. So incredibly deep and really fun to watch. Cool to see Shatara get that national record and a second-place finish. The other part, and you've got to give Let's Run credit for kind of sort of breaking this part of the story, but in, his, in the last water stop with about 2K to go, Shatara grabs his bottle, which he had adorned all of his bottles with sort of a reef with flowers on them, like pink flowers or something. <laughs> so you could you could see whenever he grabbed his bottle, and he could see, obviously, the bottles on the table. But with his last bottle, he grabbed this armband that had a shield attached to it that he attached <laughs> to his arm. And so the commentators are speculating, wh- and he slid it up his arm and put it on his bicep. And as you're watching the feed, you couldn't really tell what it was or what it said, but ultimately Let's Run got some still photos, and it basically said, in English, last fight... And it had a picture of himself kind of on this <laughs> shield. That he was or like a cartoon version a cartoon of himself, version, right? Yeah, like a caricature. <laughs> cartoon version. It says, last fight, wearing it on his bicep as he finished. And, you know, to me, that just goes back to everything we talk about with mental training. I mean, that was his mantra. Absolutely. The last 2K was he knew it was going to be a race of seconds and that he had to get every bit out of it. So he his mantra for the end was last fight. Last yeah. fight all the way to the finish. Amazing. And he did it. Yeah. 
So cool. And he made a whole lot of money. A whole lot of money. Um, <laughs> That's a good payday. For a for million dollars. Yeah. It's the biggest payday in in the sport, I think. But one of the biggest single paydays, that's for sure. Perhaps. Yep. So, highly entertaining to watch. Good to see Tokyo get, the, the Tokyo Marathon get a little bit more press as it's usually sort of dominated by the other, the other majors in terms of PR and, and coverage. Okay, now, Steve, we have to talk about a rogue athlete performance in Tokyo. You had a runner there who trains with us with Team Rogue by the name of Brian Morton. Everybody who's a rogue will know that name. He's he's fast, but didn't join us as really <laughs> super fast. I mean, he's fast, has always been fast, but he came to us as a 309 marathoner, has been whittling that away over the last six or so years in training with us. Got down to the 230 mark with you, but has had several marathons, I think three in a row, where he just finished just over 230, sort of having tough times at the end of those marathons recently. But in Tokyo, got it done in a 2.25 and change after going out a little faster than you guys had planned. So talk about Brian's result and what you take away as a coach watching that. So interesting. I was watching the updates on my on my computer, yelling at my computer because Brian did not follow my race plan. <laughs> and, and I... You know, we talked about this. That's a very helpless place to be in as it a coach, is. right? Once you see that first 5K split. Well, that's it, it, uh, and with Brian, it's especially that way because we've we've really struggled. He and I have really struggled with what is the piece of the puzzle that we're not getting right. Did we have not have our nutrition right? Did we not make enough of a negative split plan? He always talks about how he fades late in the race. He doesn't feel good late in the race. We talked about what nutrition things he was doing. We talked about... Running, he's run Chicago a couple times. We created a, a, a plan where he would accelerate during the middle of the run. So I mean, we've done everything we can to turn over. And we finally decided to make a race plan for this race where he basically went out in 235 pace, Chris. Like, we were literally just, I was like, okay, I'm not going to get what I want. So I'm not going to get us down to where I think he is. And I've been, I, think, I think that B-Mort has been ready for sub-225 for at least three years. Um, so... It's super frustrating as a coach when the athlete isn't capable of doing that. And I know Brian has done... And anybody that knows Brian knows that he's not cavalier with his training. He does everything right. He does everything he possibly can. He might could use a little bit more of the mental training tools that we talk about sometimes, but we didn't really know exactly what his experience was going into races. So for him to be running in this race where we had made a very conservative plan and then he goes out basically like at 223, 222 pace for the first... 5k to 10k i mean i'm just throwing it was nighttime so i threw my beer across the room i'm yelling ruth is saying what do you do what is going on in there i'm like god damn fucking be more won't follow the plan i can't believe this that and then i eat crow and it's all over because the boy as we keeps going and going and going i start getting texts he's gonna do it he's gonna get it do it i'm still steaming out of my ears <laughs> saying but he's not following my plan and you know within he it, it took for him to cross the finish line and for me to see it was 226, 225, depending on how, whether, which they were going to take the chip time or the, or the gun time was kind of hard to tell. You don't, you know, some of these things don't always play out the way that you think they are when the, from a timing map perspective and everything else. But as soon as he crossed the finish line, Chris, I took a deep breath and realized, quit being so stupid and so egotistical. Like, even as coaches, we get ourselves all wrapped up in the game of ego, of following my plan, of doing what I said to do, and it's my way or the highway. And you know what? Brian proved... On that day, and he called me immediately after, and he said, I said, 
dude, I said, I basically made a facetious statement, which is I still fucking can't get you to close, which is really kind of how I felt. And he started laughing. He was like, yes, that's true. I did not close. <laughs> However, I did run 225, which right. is really the point. Right. And, but, but in that conversation with him, I realized very quickly that he had, he had taken the bull by the horns for the exact, at exactly the race played out that way for him. And so he took advantage of the way the way the race played out. And a lot with our guests that we have coming on, um, Alex Hutchinson's in his book, um, Endure, he talks about Reed Kulisset from, from uh, Canada, who basically on a given day, the night before his race, as he and his coach had a conservative race plan, he walked downstairs, his, his coach was having a beer at the, at, the, at the bar at the hotel that he was at. He went down to his coach and said, hey, I think I really want to go for it. Can I go for it? And his coach looked him in the eye and realized the man had the man was ready for it. And he says, yes, you can go for it. And their whole plan changed. And he went with the leaders and ran with the leaders. And I really do feel that Brian did that step. And so it's super gratifying to have an athlete get much one step closer to one of the big goals that he's had for a long, long time. But even more so is to recognize and to have the humility of saying, as coaches, we can do everything we could possibly do, but our runners do the races they do because that's what they want to do. And they're, they're the magic, Chris. The coaching's not the magic. The athletes and their performance on a given day, we, we set a lot of things up there. You have been a co-coach with me, DeBrian, for a long time. We've set a lot of these things in place, but it took Brian, as I've said many times, reaching for that apple and grabbing it and knowing that it's his and owning it. And super proud of him for that result. And if he was a 325 marathoner, I would be just as proud as him being a 225 marathoner. It's not about that. It's about years and years of struggle Huge improvements and then years and years of struggle to get any better. And then to nail it on one given day was just incredibly gratifying and humbling. Um, and I think it's a great lesson for all athletes out there. Plateaus occur and they happen and they're not always physiological. Some of them are psychological. And there's a lot of myriad of reasons for what they are. Keep plugging away. Keep believing in the plan and execute to the best of your ability. And when opportunities arise and your gut tells you to do something, go for it. Take a risk. Take go a risk. It. It was it was it was it was really awesome and really galvanizing to a lot of our community. He said after our on our Facebook page we have a lot of like everybody follows everybody's races on online and they're just posting and he said he got really emotional afterwards because he was reading on the subway that all the people supporting him after his race and uh, it was just a really great moment for Team Rogue and, and one of those that I think can be, you know, it, it plays out in a lot of different ways for our listeners. So it's cool. It's cool for him. So congrats to be more for getting it done for breaking that barrier. It's cool for the team, I think, for Team Rogue. Keeping it also, the streak alive, man. It, yeah, we had a really good run from CIM to Houston to Austin to Tokyo. And it just goes to show you that this isn't a solo sport unless you make it that. Because the power of the team, seeing others succeed, has driven everybody higher in that group. So it's been, been cool to see. I also think it's a good story in this segue to talk to Alex because Brian was able to break a barrier there by taking risks, which is some of the things that Alex has talked about in his book and in some of the interviews he's done. So let's turn to that now. Again, we're talking to Alex Hutchinson. He was our episode 48 guest where we talked about his seven pillars of running wisdom, his final piece with Runner's World before he's now with Outside Magazine and just released his book, Endure. Mind, body, and the curiously elastic limits of human performance. We're super excited to have him on. You and I both read the book and super, super excited about it. So now we'll welcome Alex. All right. Welcome, Alex Hutchinson, to the show. How are you doing today, Alex? I'm good. Thanks a lot for having me on. We wanted to start the conversation not talking about your book because we will have plenty of time talking about your book. 
But we wanted to start by talking where we left off a little bit about where we left off in our last conversation in episode 48 with you as we were talking about Kipchoge and his pursuit of the world record. And obviously there's some overlap, at least topically, with your book. But in particular, Steve and I have been fascinated by his approach to London coming up, where he's kind of been a little bit coy about his... (laughs) his intentions there. And on one hand, he has said, Hey, you know, the world record is definitely important to me and it's the only thing missing from my resume. But on the other hand, he's also been quoted as saying he doesn't care about the world record for London. He just wants to get the win. So having been around Kipchoge at least closer than we have, Alex, what do you think about this, this KG Kipchoge leading up to London? Is he really just messing with his competitors or is he still kind of figuring it out for himself? You know, it's kind of having sort of worshipped at the feet of Kipchoge a little bit. Uh, I think probably my answer would be like, whatever he's doing is probably the right thing. Whatever he's doing, <laughs> like we should all be trying to learn from it because everything he seems to do seems to be, you know, turn out, you know, turn to gold. Um, but but my sense, honestly, even like aside from my general sort of hero worship, is that I it, I think it's a smart move. Like there's the anticipation before Berlin was so you know, it was so thick, you know, thanks in part to the kinds of things people like me were saying that, oh yeah, he he could run 201. He's like, (laughs) you know, he's on wheels. He's amazing. And it just like the the fact that Berlin, the the, the run he did in, you know, in those conditions was sort of, sort of felt like a disappointment. I mean, that was, that was crazy, you know, objectively speaking that anyone feels (laughs) let down by that race. And I think, you know, he, he is human probably somewhere in there. And so the pressure has got to be something he has to deal with. And I, you know, I, everyone has their own ways of managing expectations and it's not just about managing everyone else's expectations, but about managing your own expectations. And so I, my feeling is like, he's from what I can tell, he's totally dialed into what he needs to do to get into the right headspace to run fast. And so I imagine he's still like, so, so I guess, okay, it's, we, we can talk about like what's, what's in his head and taking the pressure off at a certain point. He still has to decide, is he going to go out and run the first half in one oh one thirty, or is he just going to say, Hey, I don't care what the rabbits do. I'm going to do whatever the other guys do. And so whether he's still going to, whether his, his agent is still going to be telling the organizers, we want the rabbits to go out one one thirty or something. I, that's, that's an interesting question. I don't, I don't know the answer to, but I, I suspect he's still, hoping to run a world record in London. Like he knows he can, he was very close two years ago in London, you know, within, within seconds. So it's not like the course is, is, you know, un, non-record possible. Right. But, uh, but I think, I think he, he's smart to avoid the kind of buildup of this is a world record attempt. Once again, everyone's going to be focused on the times for the, like the, 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 the weeks or months leading up to it. And, and, you know, I think, I think we all have a sense that it, it can be a kind of negative thing for the sport and even for the athletes when it's like every race is, will he break the world record? Oh, he didn't. Oh, that's too bad. He, he failed. <laughs> so what do you think about, um, Sir Mo Farah's chances? Um, do you think he's got pressure on him for a win or do you think he's able to go in there and sort of try to steal one from, you know, the, the crown prince or the king of marathoning at this point? Where do, what do you, where do you put Mo Farah's chances and the sort of the pressure he might be dealing with um, at, at London this year. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think sort of people who follow running are unlikely to favor Farah to do you know anything you know like maybe he runs two five or something, which would be obviously like you know better than a poke in the eye. Um, <laughs> but to, to compete with the field that they've got, I don't think most people really expect that. Especially you know his last obviously you know, past performance is no guarantee of future failure or whatever. But you know he, he didn't look like he at, you know you look at someone like Rupp who who kind of Galen Rupp who rolled into the marathon and looked good immediately has has been you know really competitive right from his first one you don't get the sense that that Farah had the, had the same natural you know from his one previous marathon he didn't seem quite as as sort of naturally suited to it um so yeah I, I'm not like I'm not super bullish on Farah's chances I think he, he he might be good he might be better than last time but um yeah like <laughs> This is my chance to make foolish predictions that I that, that <laughs> end up biting me in the butt. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think he's going to be competitive for top. Maybe for top, if he if he comes top three. Here, okay, here's my prediction: if he comes top three, it will be because he ran conservatively early and picked off some guys who were blowing up because they were trying to run two oh three or whatever. And in terms of the pressure, the thing is, so all of that, all of what I just said is like what I imagine to be the sort of. Uh, you know, committed running fans' perspective. For the from the British public's perspective, I imagine they're going to be expecting him to run like one fifty three or something like that. There's going to be a lot of pressure no matter what he does. But you know, he can he can cry himself to sleep on on big piles of money about that pressure. I guess <laughs> we we had Steve Jones on, former marathon world record holder, who said that he thought Farah had a chance. At least from his perspective, he looks at Farah and he says he has all the tools to compete with somebody like Kipchoge. And so we were trying to sort out with him if that was the British fanboy in him <laughs> being optimistic about Farah's chances or if, if that was a legitimate perspective. It made me at least double or think again about my prediction, which I, I'm similar to you in that I think Farah's got a He'll probably break the British national record, which still is held by Steve Jones in something like 208 30. Mm -hmm. He'll probably break that. But does he have a chance to hang with Yoda of marathoning? No. <laughs> I don't think it'll be, it'll be even close. And well, the, the Steve Jones perspective, to some extent, is like he knows how fast he ran and he knows how fast he was over 10K. So he can look at someone like Mo Farah and say, man, Farah would lap me like three times. So of course <laughs> he should be able to run faster in the marathon. But S Steve Jones may not. Uh, well, look, I, you know, he's a smart guy. Obviously, he, he knows a lot, but he just he may take for granted what an amazing marathoner he was, and and it, not everyone translates as well to the marathon yeah, that, as, as he did. That was definitely our experience in interviewing him. He was, um, he's certainly not a he's not a a person who's a shrieking violet, but he doesn't like to tout the things that he was great at because I still think he knows they were cultural and where he came from and where his heart was, and they really weren't training because. That man trained like he 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 had some very unusual training methods as we talked to him, but <laughs> um, but he was he is still one of the best interviews we've done because he just tells it to you straight, no chaser every time, <laughs> and very colorful. Yeah, it, 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 definitely a personality, and and uh, you know his mental toughness is legendary, and you know you have to give credit to Farah. Farah is is both a talented runner, but also a ferociously tough. Like he's a winner, but being a winner on over a 30 minute race compared to being a winner over a two hour race at a certain point, the mental toughness also has to, you know, 
give give way to are your legs still working at working at that point you know is your stride suited to to going for that that far and you know and and it may well be that Farah has has you know has adjusted his training sufficiently to 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 make that leap but um you know i i mean my general policy is you know if the question is how is runner X going to do in the marathon? My answer is badly because that's always a safe bet. <laughs> uh, you know, obviously bet. some, te- some people win the race, but you just never know in advance who it's going to be. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll use the London talk as a segue. Of course we didn't even mention, but Kaylee, who is also going to be there and we'll see what shape he's in, but we're definitely looking forward to London, but we'll use that talk a little bit about Kipchoge as a segue. You used the breaking two stories with Nike and Kipchoge as a common thread to sort of weave through the book and starting there at the beginning and then weaving your experience watching that in person throughout the book. One thing that was interesting to me, there was a Deadspin article immediately afterwards that kind of summarized their perspective on what happened. And it, it pretty accurately captured my perspective on it because as I watched it as a skeptic, uh, who thought this was just a big marketing gimmick from Nike. I, I became very intrigued, but not because of what Nike wanted me to be intrigued by, but this is how Deadspin put it. So I want to read this quote and then I'd like to get your perspective as somebody who was there. So they finished their article by saying it was the Kipchoge show. The commentators blathered endlessly about Nike science, but that all went out the window. The minute the camera focused on Kipchoge, Nike's gimmickry gimmickry did little for the two unfortunates which is driven home like a knife with every velvet step Kipchoge took. Flying on after 30K, faster than any human had ever run, it was increasingly clear that this part, going over the wall where the strain on mind and body must have been excruciating, this was about one extraordinary athlete. The shoes, all that, had fallen away, useless, silly. What was happening was not Nike-made and had very little retail potential. It cannot be reproduced on others, though no doubt unintended. Nike produced a two-hour opus by Kipchoge, on Kipchoge, and it was lovely. What's your take on De- Deadspin's take? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think the overall message that they took away, and you took away, and I took away, and almost everyone took away is holy mackerel! Kipchoge is a is a work of art. Like, there's no doubt he was he was the revelation of that that project, um, and and. Um, you know what 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 I've been saying, you know, as as I reflect back on this, and you know, having, you know, this isn't this isn't intended as a gratuitous book plug, but having having written a book, uh, you know, w- where I was thinking a lot about what are the ways we can, you know, how the mind limits performance, and what are the ways we can push back the mind's effects on performance. My take is, you know, all of that, uh, you know. The ten years of of my book writing or whatever, and three hundred pages, none of that has anything to teach Elliot Kipchoge. Elliot <laughs> Kipchoge is like he he doesn't need any of these study. You know the eleven thousand words of footnotes that I put in it doesn't matter. He's already there, and and what all the science is doing is trying to see if it can help everybody else take a few steps in the direction of Kipchoge to be a little bit more like. What he is, you know, whether it's intuitively or what by, I don't, I don't want to undersell and say he was just born that way. He's probably, he's worked, I'm sure he's worked very hard on the mental side of the sport, you know, in addition to working very hard on the physical side of the sport. So he, for sure, he's the paragon and, and, uh, you know, (laughs) anyone who can get slightly more like Kipchoge in some ways is, 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 is a winner. 
Now, in terms of what I think of Dead Simmons take, I mean, they're, they're probably maybe in some sense the one of the more direct and outspoken exponents of a view that a lot of people had, which is, you know, like I said, it's all a big marketing stunt and, you know, it's all, it's all garbage. A couple things I would say about that. One is like, I I, I don't think you could find anybody on the planet who didn't think it was a big marketing exercise, including within Nike. I mean, of course it was a big marketing exercise. What, what, what I found challenging is, is people's insistence that it had to be only one thing, that it couldn't be, uh, you know, a, a fascinating, exploration of the you know the nature and of human limits and also a big marketing stunt to me it was both of those things that like the commercial side of it was it's like yeah i mean of of course no, no there was there was no secret that it was a massive marketing endeavor and it came out of their their marketing budget it can still be pretty cool and so i think it was you know to me it was still pretty cool and as for the take you know as in terms of the quote that you just read about how the shoes turned out to be useless and stuff like that well Okay, yeah, well, you know, when when somebody runs two flat twenty five in a different pair of shoes, then I'll, I will uh, <laughs> I will acknowledge I will acknowledge that. It's like again, it's this it's this all or nothing thinking. It's like Kipchoge's performance had to be all Nike's technology, evil technological wizardry, or it had to be all Elliot Kipchoge's you know Yoda like use of the force. Like actually, you probably needed both. Kipchoge has a wonderful mind, but he did not run two flat twenty five in any of the, you know, seven previous marathons he ran. So I, you know, I understand the, where the sentiment comes from, but I think it's a little over the top and maybe purposely, purposefully. So, and I think you'd have a hard time kind of if, with any sort of dispassionate logic, uh, suggesting that, that all the other elements of the breaking two, uh, project didn't have anything to do with, with the actual performance. What did you learn from Kipchoge? Just watching him as a human, what did you learn? I mean, taking whatever book lessons aside, but just you know, kind of any exposure you had to him, what what was your big takeaway? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. A lot of the a lot of the stuff that Kipchoge said is stuff that, in another context, I, you know, I would have laughed at. It's like, you know. Why does he smile late in the race? Well, because he runs with his heart and mind as well as his legs. It's like, oh, please, you know, and, and, you know, what does he like to read? He likes to read the seven habits of highly successful people and other like motivational literature. It's like my response. Oh, please. <laughs> and it's, but, but it was interesting that I was, I was meeting Kipchoge and, and hearing this stuff from him at the same time that I was doing this research, uh, you know, reading these studies about things like motivational self-talk and the the fact that they work or reading studies about the fact that, hey, you know what, you you know, you tell a runner to smile and they actually, their running economy gets 2% better. They, they get, they burn 2% less energy at the same pace. So it's like, it was an interesting sort of reality check for me as someone who's inherently skeptical, who, who doubts most things, who, you know, who, who always wants the evidence that not everyone who is, you know, spewing out motivational platitudes is is saying it, it, not all of that is true obviously but there are some some kernels of of if not truth and some some kernels of useful wisdom in there and so i you know i took away from kipchoge that it, the, the, 
but some of the stuff that I sort of turn my nose up as a, as a skeptic, that it really has power. And it's, it's, it's easiest to see it when you see someone like Kipchoge, who is totally sincere about this stuff and is totally self-confident. He doesn't need my approval or anybody else's approval. He's not like, uh, uh, you know, do you think this will work? He, he's comfortable in his own skin. And he's also not closed. It's again, for him, it's not like one or the other. It's not all on the mind or all on the body. He was very open and enthusiastic about the data that the Nike team was, was giving him. Like he and his coach both were like, you know, they have a very well-tested training program. Uh, one that a lot of runners have been through and one that they know works well for Kipchoge. They have a pretty good formula, but they were, they were interested to see, okay, what is the you know the computer algorithm that analyzes the training? What does it tell them about his training? What 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 are its suggestions? What where does it does, does it see any weaknesses? Not that they're necessarily going to act on them, but that you know he's open to all avenues and he's not it's not all one or the other. But he's definitely, uh, you know, he's he's very conf- c- confident and comfortable in his approach. And uh, yeah, so that's a long rambling answer, but th- those are kind of the impressions that I, that I took away from it. When you were talking, Alex, about giving yourself a gratuitous plug for the book, I want to, for all our listeners, give a uh, Chris and Steve's gratuitous plug to your book, because I have <laughs> to tell you, I've read a lot of running books in my days, and I'm probably, as Chris and I may get to some questions later on in this uh, interview, probably as far away from the way I coach in terms, I'm closer to the coach that tricks and fools and lies and all the other things that you talked about. <laughs> I'm not science-based. I like results and I like my, my results could be from science or not science, but man, you put together, you wrote just an incredibly beautiful book that includes the history of the science, the science, the stories that allude to these to the a lot of amazing stories that uh, that sort of feed into the science and how the science plays out, and wove it all together in a way that included your own personal views and your own and your experiences. And then my favorite part, one of my very favorite parts of the book, of many favorite parts, was your ability to get uh, Marcora into the race and for him to you to the the two of you to look at each other near the finish line. And just be like, oh my God, did we just see, are we seeing what we see? Your fanboy all in there in a way that is, I just haven't read anything quite like it. And I just wanted to tell you, to, to thank you for that experience. Very, very rarely do I want to read a book twice. This one I'm excited about reading for the second time and I'm handing it out to everybody I possibly can. Um and I, I just wanted to say thank you for all those years of struggle that you put in to write it. <laughs> um, and, you know, one of the things you pull in here is sort of that experience of the breaking two with with uh, Bannister's sort of breaking four, um, you know, back in the 50s. And you tie them together in a really, you don't really tie them together explicitly, but one of the things that sort of dials in it similarly in these two regards is the specialness of that athlete. And um, there were many people, as you indicated in the fifties who were ready to break sub four, but they never, Landy didn't get the opportunity to do it. A couple of Americans didn't get the opportunity to do it, but, but it was taken by Bannister. How much do you think of those giant barrier breaks do you think is the athlete and how much of it is maybe sort of the, the, the way that, time plays out in it like was it destined to be 
that 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 banister was going to break for in a sense or was it that banister was that that banister was just so good he had to do it you know what i mean there's a little bit of a difference there yeah yeah it's it's interesting well first of all you know thanks for those really really kind words about the book it it it, it means a lot and i'm i'm super thrilled to hear that um in terms of yeah banister is it you know was it always going to be banister one way or the other i mean i think definitely on one on one level we can say definitely no like if there if there wasn't a world war ii probably it would have gone down a decade earlier uh or you know or at least earlier you know because it set back the progress of uh, of track for you know who knows how many potential great runners it just wiped out um so you know there's always circumstances uh that uh that, that that intercede it's, it's interesting actually just as a t- total random aside i've been exchanging emails for the last couple of days with david epstein the author of the sports gene he's he's about to tackle a big book and, and was was contemplating war and peace which is one i <laughs> for whatever reason read a long time ago and we were discussing what, whether whether it was worth reading and one of the big things in war and peace like what i told him is war and peace has a great story but it also has these really long interludes which may or may not to be your taste where it's an argument about the the great man theory of history. Is it like, uh, you know, do great men change the course of history, or they just they just happen to be in the right place in the right time? And if it wasn't, you know, Napoleon, and it would have been Bob, the the, the next guy who would have, uh, you know, ruled Russia or ruled uh, France rather. Um, and and Tolstoy's his position is that it's all circumstances, basically that that. Uh, you know, the, the, the people we remember as the great men just happened to be the right person at the right time. And it could have been, could have been someone else just as equally uh, in running. Yeah. Like, I mean, as, as you can guess that, you know, I don't have a, a, a firm answer, but I think, well, it's, it's, it's hard to know how much hindsight biases you, but, but Bannister did seem to have some sort of well, yeah, as you ask me now, it's 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 an interesting one because maybe we'd be seeing those. I was going to say Bannister has something special, right? Like he had some sort of instant. He was he was at his best on that particular day and rising, you know, preparing for that specific, particular moment. But maybe if Landy had done it, we would be seeing those characteristics, and we would be you know looking back and saying, well, Landis, Landy obviously had those those traits. So. I guess on balance, you, you, I, I'm shifting my answer as as we go, but I think, I think in the end, it, it sort of could have been anybody um, of the of the maybe you know three humans on the planet that year, you know, Wes Santee and John Landy and and uh, and Bannister who were who were knocking at the door. It, under under the right circumstances, it could it could have been anyone. I think, and you know, if you read that the. Uh, Neil Bascom's book, the first book. four minutes, which really tells the story of all all three of those guys, you really get the sense he does a, a really great job of helping you understand some of the things that were holding Landy and and Santee back the 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 collegiate season for Santee and these all these you know crappy meets with crappy weather with no competition that that uh, that Landy was running in Australia and then you know is. He finally is like, oh, I need to go to Europe and 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 actually race at some real track meets. And three days after he arrives in Helsinki, uh, Bannister breaks the four minute mile. So, I think I've convinced myself that the answer is it's more circumstances than, than the man. But it's obviously you you have to that it's not like anybody could do it. it it's, there there's a small subset of people who might who could be the great man or great woman, as the case may be, and uh, and then you have to get some luck. 
Well, now that you mentioned Russian fiction, <laughs> like um, <laughs> I wanted to sneak that in there. Did, did I know, mention that I read I've, War and I've Peace? Does that make me sound War good? Peace. I had a Tolstoy and Dostoevsky sort of phase in my life during college. And so that's anyway, better than on Ron. I mean, right, so <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna resist the temptation to ask a follow-up on Russian fiction for the sake of our audience. But uh, I will ask a follow-up on this question, which is that you know, you talk about in the book this idea that about barrier breaking and that there's this mythology about the breaking for a situation where everybody thinks, or at least the mythology is that once that was broken by Bannister, that suddenly this massive rush of people started breaking four minutes in the mile, which isn't really true when you look at the facts. And for the Americans that are listening, the first American didn't break four until three years after Bannister and the second and third didn't do until six years later. And as Let's Run recently said or quoted, you know, there's more billionaires in the U.S. now today than there are than there have ever been American four-minute wow, milers, which is a crazy stat. Which would you rather so be? <laughs> <laughs> right. So and yet, and yet, from since Bannister's days, we've had massive improvement in training methodology. People focusing on training. I mean, Bannister did it as a med student, you know, for crying out loud. So it, it still leads me to this question of you know, as you just kind of allude to in the book of, you know, just breaking the barrier isn't necessarily this watershed moment. You know, it's also the lessons that come with that barrier breaking that then have to kind of disseminate to the rest of the world. And outside of this special group of athletes, you mentioned Landy and Santee and Bannister who, who had the chance to do it. Nobody else was really ready or at least not to do it right away. And so, what does that tell you now as you think about mental limits? Yeah, it's, it, it, it is interesting. So I, I, I kind of, I, I feel bad because my answer to like most questions is like, well, it's somewhere in between those two things that you suggested. And, and, and this was definitely a case of, uh, for like the four minute mile, I was, you know, I was initially thinking of it as like, you know, a great example of, of a mental barrier. And then you look at the, you know, you look into the actual circumstances and you're like, well, it was still pretty darn hard. And I, you know, so it definitely wasn't like, oh, now that someone has run a four minute mile, everyone can do it. At the same time though, it is interesting because it's like, okay, if you're comparing to like World War II, things were very different in 1942 and it's not surprising no one was running a four minute mile. But if you compare like 1952 to 1956, how come zero people were doing it compared to even like four or five, five or six people? And so there, there's, there, and, and it's, I don't think the training had changed that radically in sort of two or three years. There's there's a question of expectations now. Back then, it was also, you know, maybe not the training so much, but one of the sort of controversial innovations that Bannister brought in was pacemaking, even pacemaking. Many you, you look at world record splits from from those eras, those early years, and it's like they they they're like school children. <laughs> they're, they're, it, even you know the best runners in the, in history, they're going out and like hammering the first lap and then slowing down and then you know, making a mis- massive move partway through and then finishing with a big sprint. So it's like, you know, one of Bannister's you know, controversial innovations was being paced three quarters of the way through his race. And so I think not only the realization that, hey, it's possible to run four minutes, but also, hey, if you want to run four minutes, maybe you should go 60, 60, 60, 59, and not like 55, 62, 67, 48, or whatever it would add up to. So, so there, there are some easy things that can disseminate that are just purely like, like you said, logistical knowledge, you know, a spread of understanding. 
Um, and then there's, there's some mental things that aren't, it's not necessarily that like everyone thought it was impossible and now we know it's possible. Therefore we're capable of doing it, but it's, you know, I mean, to state the obvious, it's like, if you want to run a four minute mile, you have to, you have to race, you have to go out at four minute mile pace. You have to like try and do it. And until someone does that, it's, it's, it's maybe not a thing that it's, it's a less obvious thing to do. And so once it's done, people are like, they're making deliberate attempts to do it because they know it's possible. And so it's not so much that they thought it was impossible before, just that once it's possible, it's something you, you deliberately set out to try and do. And, and then you're much more likely to have success if people are trying to do something than if it's just, you're waiting for it to happen in the natural course of events as people get a little bit faster. So, you know, and, and you know, you can compare that again to bringing it back to the breaking two stuff. Um, and we, you know, we can, we can argue all night long about, you know, how much of a difference drafting made and how much the shoes made and how much the various other things did, but the drafting, I think there's some reasonably some some reasonable evidence that drafting might've been significant. And you, you could see, okay, at breaking two, Kipchoge was tucked behind six pacemakers in a nice little arrowhead formation, pretty much the whole race. They didn't do that at Berlin, but they did have three pacemakers who were deliberately running in an arrowhead formation, and they were and Kipchoge was explicitly tucked right behind them in the middle for the whole race. And so, if there is even a half percent difference to get out of drafting, he's now much more explicitly trying to leverage that advantage that he can get, even if it's only for thirty or thirty-two k or something like that. And you know, one of the things I did when I was when we were, when I was looking into this for for the you know, covering the, the breaking two project is like, okay, well, how much drafting? Cause it's like, okay, well, what's the difference? Cause runners have always been drafting. Well, no. Cause you know, even if they had pacemakers, I went back and looked up pictures from the last four, uh, men's world marathon records. And in every, every case I could find pictures, you know, midway or late through the race where, the, they're running, you know, with three pacemakers, but the the guy who ends up setting the world record is way off to the side because it's you know it's more comfortable to run with. You can see the open road; you're not going to get tangled up in anyone's feet or anything like that. So they're not actually drafting; they're using the pacemakers as someone who is setting the pace, as literally a pacemaker, not a a wind blocker. And so he, there's another great, just like Bannister's use of of pacers and even pace even pacing was might have been kind of one of the enabling factors that then spread relatively rapidly uh kipchoge's use or or the breaking two projects use of uh, you know really paying attention to sheltering from the wind when you're running at 435 mile pace for two to or you know close to that for an elite marathoner could be something that sort of systematically allows people to go a fraction of a percent faster if they if they're in that lead pack and able to, to tuck behind the pacemakers so essentially people are taking some of the lessons, assimilating them into their own training. And so maybe the breaking of that specific barrier didn't necessarily mean mentally, Hey, I can do this, but it gave them information that allowed them to do it. But I also wonder to what extent, you know, especially as we go back to your story in the book about breaking four for the 1500, once you were able to do that, then you never had trouble again because you kind of knocked out a personal limit in your mind. And so for me, I also wondered, does it matter to the extent that you can either see yourself do it or relate to the person who does it in a way that says, you know what, if he can do it, I can do it. 
you know, like if your training partner was also in the same pursuit and they happen to get it done, whether it's breaking four or running whatever marathon time, they happen to get it done, then you say, you know what, I'm, I'm with him every step in training. I can do it too. And so to what extent does it matter that you can relate to the barrier broken or that you can see it done in yourself? Yeah. You know, I, I think that's, that's the thing I think about a lot in terms of like what explains East African marathon success or distance running success. Why are the Kenyans so good? And I think, you know, there are 57 factors, but one of those factors that I think is, is, is worth considering is that they, you know, they come from a, a lot of the runners come from a very fairly small region. Every, everybody there, every runner who comes out of that region has like a cousin or a friend or a high, you know, who, who has done it, who has, who has not just run a good marathon, but has run a great marathon and probably has 10 people they know pretty well who've been like world-class runners. And so there's a real sense that it's a sort of a transitive property. If they can do it, I can do it too. I mean, I, I remember back like 10 or 12 years ago, I, I was, uh, I did a newspaper article on like a, a really like C-string Canyon marathon or like a, he ended up his best, I think was two sixteen. but he was, he was the kind of guy who bounced around Canada for, you know, eight weeks at a time, a couple of times a year running two race, two races a weekend, picking up, you know, a hundred, 200 bucks a crack. And I was like, you know, my story was like, how do these guys make a living and who the heck are they? And like, how does it start? But his, his life story was really interesting. And he'd, he'd, you know, he'd run some races for his school in, in, uh, as, as high school in high school, but not like seriously. And then he'd, he'd, uh, I think he'd run into some trouble in, in his life and he'd ended up like basically hauling logs through the forest for a bunch of years and had some, had kids and, and was sort of scraping by and poor living in his, and in his twenties, at some point, he was listening to the radio in, in the mid nineties, and he heard a report that Eric Wynana had won, like I can't remember, I think it was a bronze medal at the Olympic marathon or something like that. And he was like, "Eric Wynana, I used to beat that dude in like elementary school. I should be a runner." So, he, so he went and joined a a, a running camp, and he, you know, his I, mean, I still remember his quote to me. It was like, "You know, those first three years, I was so poor, I didn't I didn't even have soap. They had to let me borrow some soap. Like he was he was living on nothing, and his parents were taking care of his wife and his first two kids on like no money." And after three years, he was good enough. He got an invitation to go over and, uh, you know, run some races in Canada and, and make, you know, I think he went back with $400 that, that first year. And he was like, this was life-changing. 400 bucks was like, he bought a cow. It was the first milking cow in their family. Anyway, this is a sort of familiar story, like the, the life-changing power of running. But the point was, he, he believed he could go do this because there was someone who he viewed as similar enough to himself that it's like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And- in a sense, you you could also, as well as the success of Kenyan runners, you could argue that the sort of decline of of, of North American and European runners in the nineties. Uh, maybe you could you could say that part of that is that they stopped feeling like they could identify with the people who were winning races. That that they were, you know, I don't mean this to sound bad or anything, but like when I was growing up in high school. We had a, you know, Graham Hood was an Olympic finalist in the 1500 in 92 and Kevin Sullivan was, uh, you know, an Olympic finalist in 2000. They were both in high school uh, just a little bit before me. So I could look up at 1500 meter runners and say, yeah, there's guys from, you know, roughly the same area as me who've made it to the top. Maybe I can be a great 1500 meter runner. And that, maybe that's the reason I chose 1500. I didn't have any role models in distance running. So there was no, I didn't look at the people who were running marathons and think, yeah, they they come from places like me. Maybe I could maybe I could be like them. So, 
anyway, another long rambling answer, but basically to say, yeah, I do think, you know, to, to acquire that belief that something is possible. And, and you know, I, I, I talk a lot in the book about the importance of belief, like that, that maybe the details of what you're doing are less important than believing that what you're doing is really, uh, you know, powerful. And, uh, but you, you can't, I, I can't acquire belief in myself by watching what Elliot Kipchoge does because there's no reason for me to think that just because Kipchoge can do something, I can do something. So there's, you have to find different ways of, of convincing yourself that it's possible for you too. And similarly, so if Kipchoge breaks a barrier, that doesn't mean, you know, Galen Rupp will believe that he can run sub two, but maybe Kipchoge's training partners or the people coming up through Kipchoge's camp will, will, will have more reason to believe it. You know, it's like it's a, not everyone gets the, the mental benefits of, of one person's accomplishments. And that is one of the biggest takeaways in your book, Alex, is that the power of belief. Um, and I, I guess maybe because your book spends so much time talking about the specific science and everything around it, and you do have some real specific suggestions, but you don't make a whole too many suggestions about how someone might go about say someone who wants to break four hours for a, a, a marathon or someone who wants to run under two hours for a half marathon. Do you have any practical suggestions to them of things they could do to develop belief? Or is that one of those intangibles that someone's just got to sort of have? Because that's a real hard intangible to, 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 for someone to think about how would I go about practically creating belief in my life yeah that's a, that's a great question and yeah definitely like in the book i kind of i decided i didn't want to go down the road of trying to be a training manual because uh it's a different kind of book and it's like I, i'm not sure that's my really my expertise but look you can't think about things like that and barriers like that without wondering okay how do i how do i do it how do i make those changes and i think you know like so that's and that you know obviously that's a question i put to a lot of the scientists I spoke to and, you know, when I asked Tim Noakes, so what do you do with this, this, you, 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 you decide that the brain is involved. You have to convince yourself, you, you know, how do you, how do you use this in training? And, and his, one of his responses was, um, listen, I think the, the great coaches have been doing this for generations. And I think that's true. So I think, you know, you can look at great athletes like Kipchoge, but also great coaches have always been working on the mind, working on fostering belief, and, you know, going back to, uh, the, you know, what, what you're saying earlier about coaching styles and doing what works. And I think that's, that's an important attribute for a coach is to be able to foster confidence in his or her athletes. And, and there's a lot of different ways of doing that. And, and, and as a guy who writes mostly about sort of what's evidence-based and what, what do we have research, it's like, it's almost the evidence is kind of irrelevant because we don't really have a lot of research on that. And it's a, and it's also very personal that, you know, I, I've, I worked with a bunch of different coaches during my running career and, you know, particularly with like, so I trained with Matt Centrowitz senior for a few years, who was a really fascinating guy to, to train with. Um, but what I noticed is, you know, my sort of skeptical mindset wasn't really, didn't really help me work with him. Cause I was, I, I was always, that. you know, Matt, <laughs> Central is, yeah, exactly. You know, you don't want to ask Central why necessarily. And he, he's just a very, very intuitive coach. Uh, and, you know, he, uh, his mind game is strong. He's, he's kind of a, uh, almost a Kipchoge level kind of Yoda of running. Like, he's just very inspirational. He makes you want to do whatever he says, even if you don't understand it. But I always, I'm the kind of guy who had this voice of like, yeah, but, you know, what, 
what are, how are we working towards my goal three months later? What, are, what do I need to know for this? And it's like, whereas the best way to go with him is like, wake up in the morning, see what he tells you to do, then do it. And, uh, and there were a couple other guys on the team, guys on the American University team who were training there at the time, like uh, Sean O'Brien and Sean Duffy, both you know mid 330s, 1500 guys. And I remember talking to them about this and they were like, dude, you just, we just trust him. Like we don't worry about whether this workout makes sense or whether he yesterday he told us to do one thing and today he's telling us to do the opposite it's like just just have have faith have have confidence and you know he gets you there in in the you know he he somehow manages to get you to the right place at the right time and for them it worked beautifully and i was really sort of envious of their ability to just have complete confidence and faith and it worked really well for them they ran really well so Anyway, to answer, so so I think that's an you know for co- for people who coach or people who have coaches, that's um, that's kind of the fundamental task for the coach and and for the athlete, the fundamental task is to you know pick your coach, do a lot of due diligence to find someone who you can work well with because it takes per- takes you know there's different personalities and you find someone who works for you. But once you find it, you know, kind of turn off your internal like quest to find the perfect workout and trust that the workout your coach is giving you is is the perfect workout and 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 really you know. It, dial into to having confidence in what you're doing yeah chris i was about to say that chris that i was about to say that chris has to suspend his disbelief frequently because i'm his coach so <laughs> well, i mean i'll give you i'll give you an example alex and i think we can tie this back to your story this weekend we have for those that are training for boston in our training programs here at rogue steve has the more advanced runners doing a 30 mile run 30 miler over distance, long run. This would uh, put the tiger in the cat, as Bill Squires used to say. And Steve, if you talk to him, will openly admit that there's no physiological benefit (laughs) to doing... 30 miles versus 24 or 26. Well, there's another, there's another wrinkle to this. The other element is we do it without nutrition. So we wake up, no, no breakfast, no gels, just water on the course with us. Wow. And, but even that part of it, you know, and we can talk in a second about fueling as a limit. Even that part of it is dubious as to whether doing this one time actually has benefits for you on marathon day. But, and Steve knows that as well. But he also knows <laughs> that if you do the 30 miler, then it somehow gives you this belief that you can do anything over 26 miles. If you can run 30 without nutrition about eight weeks before your race. So it, it's it's magic that he's sort of working on this power of belief without, while knowing that it doesn't necessarily have any physiological benefit. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's a classic example. And I think I, I would almost say that it's, it's, it's almost incorrect to say that it doesn't have physiological benefit because psychology is just a special case of physiology. You know, if, if it convinces you that you can you can do something that's going to change your your physiological ability to do the race. That's going to to to, to sustain it. And so that, I think that's an, a great example of the kind of thing Tim Noakes was talking about. And I say it's a great example without passing judgment on whether everyone should do a thirty mile fasted <laughs> run before a marathon. That's that's a question for each person and each coach. But it's the kind of it's that's the way coaches have always thought. That it's not just about you know what is my maximum rate of fat oxidation you know compared to carbohydrate oxidation. It's like how do I get the athlete to the line confident that he or she can do what it is uh, 
they're setting out to do. So yeah, that that's a great example. I mean, I, I, and in terms of creating belief, I think these sorts of what you know in the book, I kind of go on a little digression about the difference between like true belief and justified belief. Like true belief, where you you believe something and it ha- and it's true. You may not have you may have no reason for believing it's true, but it happens to be true. Like you say, I'm gonna. I'm sure I'm going to draw an ace on the next hand, and you do. Well, you got lucky, but it was it turned out to be true. You can, and then you have justified belief, where you have a good reason for believing it was true. It could still be wrong, like you believe your your car is in the garage, and you have every reason in the world to believe that it just happens that someone has stolen it, so it's not. And to be really powerful, I think you need to tick both those boxes. It has to be true, and it has to be justified. So you have to have reason for thinking that you can run sub four hours. You can't just out of the blue decide you're going to run four hours. Um, but you know, so you have to be able to justify it, and then it also has to be true. And and so this is why progress in running is mostly incremental, right? Like you, because you know the best way to convince yourself that you can run a four-hour marathon is to have run somewhere close to that before, or to have run a half marathon that predicts somewhere close to that. But uh, you know, I, I mean, I guess just just to, to because I feel bad that I totally um, kind of dodged the actual question of do you have any practical advice at all. So I, I will just mention the idea of motivational self-talk, um, which is a standard sports psychology technique, but is one that now meets the Hutchinson skeptical seal of approval because there have been multiple studies in the last couple of years from a, from different research groups, which test out this, again, seemingly like really simple intervention. You know, you, you do a test to exhaustion or a race or whatever, you identify what kind of words are going through your head at different points of the of the race? Like, is it, I can't do this. I'm, you know, I'm 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 too tired. There, this hurts too much, or whatever. And then you try and come up with alternatives that are that are not crazy. Not like you, you can't just decide that your self talk is going to be I'm invincible and I'm going to run the last mile in 3:52. But you you come up with things like I've trained for this. I'm ready for this. I can do this. And you're just simple stuff like, and, and you practice using it. And then when the next race comes, you, you, you're ready that at halfway, this is what you're going to say to yourself. And at three quarters, this is what you're going to say to yourself. And so, yes, it, it, it seems to work to enhance endurance performance and, you know, time to exhaust in time in the, in the lab. But, and more interestingly, it's like, it's, it's beyond just being a placebo effect or whatever. They've shown that you're able to actually push deeper into your physiological reserve after, after this sort of very simple self-talk intervention that you're, you're, uh, uh, you can push your core temperature a little bit higher, maybe half a degree higher, for example, as evidence that changing the the monologue in your head is allowing you to kind of tap a little deeper into your reserves. So I think that's effectively a, 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 a way of making sure that you're not torpedoing your belief under stress, where you know our minds always start to play tricks with us, you know, in the stress of a race, and so you want to make sure that you're not letting the doubt take over uh, under those circumstances. So if, if Breaking 2 was an opus by Kipchoge on Kipchoge, then Steve and I were happy to read your book because for us it's an opus on stuff we talk about all the time, which is mental training and this idea that self-talk is super important. We actually have a whole podcast series on mental training where we talked about these very concepts coming from a place not of science but all, but just of our experience as coaches. One of the things we get to and and for us self-talk is sort of a small sliver of the picture we kind of take people through a process where first they have to make a decision to commit to a pursuit and running in this case is our pursuit that we coach so you got to make a decision to commit 
to the pursuit. And then you have to decide what your purpose is in the pursuit. And so we talk to people a lot about creating a statement of purpose for their running, which gives, gives them a sort of a grounding for goal setting, gives them a grounding for creating mantras to be used for self-talk as they pursue that goal later, whether it be in training or in a race. And sometimes we get us people looking at us, you know, like with their eyes crossed or they, they kind of tune us out because they think we're being a little cheesy about it. So we were happy to see this theme come up in your book because it sort of validates what we've been telling them without the science. What does what do you think about this idea of extending it though beyond just specific kind of self-talk concepts to kind of a bigger almost existential discussion about purpose yeah you know i think well it's it's been interesting reading stuff by like brad stolberg and steve magnus about you know the importance of having a purpose in what you do and how that affects your approach to it i i, I think it's i think it's really uh valuable so let me let me let me answer it this way um and I, I, you know you, you may have heard me tell this story before but actually just uh it was maybe a week ago i was on the subway and uh saw someone holding a lululemon yoga bag and, and you know they're all covered with these like motivational slogans and uh you know one of them was like you know once you set a goal goals for yourself you activate your subconscious computer and you know, my, I was looking at it and I was like, huh, that's kind of what my book says, except it takes 300 pages <laughs> to say it. Um, you know, is, is my book, this just a giant yoga slogan that people, you know, of what people have been saying for decades. And so I had, you know, it made me think a little bit about, hang on, you know, let me reassure myself that I didn't just waste the last decade. And, and so I think part of it for me was, you know, and as I mentioned in the book, I had people telling me about, or, you know, I had sports psychologists in college trying to teach us stuff like motivational self-talk or negative thought stopping. So it's like, it's not like no one has said this stuff before, but I was one of the people who you're, you like you're, you're mentioning here who kind of, I, it's not my fault. It's the way I am. I just kind of roll my eyes at that stuff. And, you know, it's, 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 it's my personality. And so for someone like me going through the process of, trying to understand how this fits into the physiology and, and how it, you know, what the evidence is and why, what, what are the theories that would explain why this actually works? Not just the sort of abstract theories, but the very specific theories that can start to look at, okay, well, this can affect your brain, how your brain is interpreting signals from the rest of your body, which in turn affects your sense of effort. And, and by altering your sense of effort, you're able to, you know, push harder physiologically, and and here are some studies that back up every stage of that of that theory. So then I come out of it saying, okay, yeah, I I think self talk is legit. Now, okay, let's talk about visualization. Is that legit? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't gone through that process. Although I have read some studies on visualization, there are some interesting studies showing that like if you're immobilized with bed rest and you like visualize contracting muscles on one side and not the other, you actually have maintain more strength through visualization. So there is some science to stuff like that. But I guess. All this is my way of saying that uh, you're not buying it. <laughs> I think that no, 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 no. What I'm saying is what what I'm what I'm saying is that I I I think put it this way. What I'm saying is if I were you know in pursuit of serious PBs right now or PRs, uh, you know, trying to 
push back the limits of my performance running, there is 0% doubt that I would enlist a sports psychologist or, or a coach who has a, a very uh, an approach that incorporates sports psychology and be trying out all these techniques, or not all these techniques, but many a, a whole suite of techniques. I wouldn't just be saying self-talk is the only thing I want because that's the one that was published in the Journal of Applied Physiology or whatever. I, I, I would have a, a, a wide approach based on the experiences that lots of people have had and the, and the, uh, you know, the, the accumulated wisdom of, of generations. Um, I, I didn't write about some of the other techniques because the, you know, my, my particular angle on, on, in this area is writing about the science and the evidence, but, and, and there are some people like me who, who, who kind of need to see the science before they buy into something. And that in order to create justified true belief they need to justify it in a very specific way of seeing it tested and 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 like poked and prodded to see if it works and in a sense i've and i've often had this this thought in this discussion with friends that mindset is kind of a weakness in a way because i think there's a lot of things that can help athletes that haven't yet been through the sort of peer review ringer and i think most great athletes are able to kind of um not get hung up on those details and, and find the things that work for them and not stress about, you know, the, the, the details of the evidence. But, uh, so all of which said, I think it's a great idea. And I think, uh, and, and I, I really love the, the approach you're describing. And I, I think as, as we go forward, I think we're going to see more efforts to, to, uh, to understand how those things work. And, you know, the benefit I would say is not just that it satisfies a few eggheads, but also that the you know by studying it we can get a sense of of what what works best in what context for whom because you know it right now it's a bit of a it's it's a challenge to try you know it really takes an artist in the sense of a, a coach who really can connect with specific athletes and understand what they need and how to how to help them reach their goals and that's hard to generalize you know not everyone has access to a really great coach and so the more we learn about it the more we can figure out what are the specific things that that will be most helpful to people. You know, Alex, I was I said earlier about your book about how many great stories you have, and you have so many stories, some of which I knew before, like the Jens Voigt one, which is just his shut up legs quote, which is just amazing. But also one I didn't know about the girl who ran at Oregon who held her her son up in a, a riptide in Australia and and ended up passing away, but lived just long enough to keep her son above water. You have so many stories in your book that just repeatedly have great impact. And tell, can you give us maybe one of those stories that that would be that would be motivational or or maybe like a, a water cooler type story that didn't make the book and ended up on the cutting room floor? Do you have any that might be inspiring that we that we haven't that we wouldn't be able to find in the book? <laughs> everything I know is in the book. But, uh, <laughs> Everything I know, you know, it was interesting. Okay. So the science is ongoing, right? Like, so at a certain point I had to reach the point of like, uh, I just need to, to submit the book because I could sit here and just keep <laughs> adding stuff because, you know, every month there's something new. And so inevitably I, I knew that as soon as I submitted the book, there'd be more stuff coming down the pike and I'd be like, no, no, I need to include that. And, uh, you know, one of the Literally a week after I submitted the draft, I uh, I was at a conference, uh, where someone uh, where there were actually two amazing talks about the physiology of of breath holding, um, which 
I, I do talk about in the book, like I, I have a section on kind of free diving and breath holding, but not as, uh, n- not as detailed or, or as interesting as, as, as I ended up getting after the book was, was published. And so one, one of the guys I talked to, so I, I kept researching it, even though the book was done. And so I talked to a guy named Brandon Hendrickson, who just last year set the new American record for breath holding. Um, and which is eight minutes and 35 seconds. And that's the world record is 11 minutes and 35 seconds. And I should hasten to say, this is not, this is without anything like breathing pure oxygen beforehand, which is what David Blaine did, uh, you know, a few years ago when he held his breath for 17 minutes. So, but what, what really stuck with me about when I, when I talked to, and, and I, I sort of, I'd looked into the physiology before and understood that, yeah, after a while, your breathing muscles start to convulse and blah, 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 blah. But it was really interesting talking to Brandon Hendrickson because he really took me through it moment by moment about what it was like holding his breath for eight minutes and 35 seconds. So what happens when you hold your breath is um, at a certain point, you start having what's called involuntary breathing movements. You, you, uh, you, your, your breathing muscles are literally contracting or convulsing or spasming them against your will. They've decided your body has decided that you're nuts and you really need to breathe. And that's not triggered by the fact that you're short on oxygen. It's actually triggered by the fact that the carbon dioxide levels in your blood are rising. So you can choose if you learn somehow, and I have, you know, I've not mastered this and I have no desire to, but you can, you can learn to ignore those signals to just suppress, uh, the, you know, not open your mouth, even though your breathing muscles are convulsing. And what was interesting to me is that even for this like elite breath holder, the Amer- you know, North American record holder, uh, so, you know, for me, it might happen after 90 seconds or something like that, maybe two minutes at most. Uh, for him, the involuntary breathing movements start shortly after four minutes. So he f- reaches what his body has de- has determined and what his what his body is trying to tell him are his ultimate physical limits after four minutes. And then he's able to suppress them and go, as I said, go to eight minutes and 35 seconds. So to me, that's maybe the most vivid kind of quantification of, okay, how much safety margin is there? And obviously every limit is different, right? Like this is a particular one, but it's like, that's a factor of two. So feeling like you're absolutely going to die if you ignore that feeling, you can double the amount of time you hold your <laughs> breath. So, so that's, that's, that's my, you know, I have, I have, you know, people often ask, okay, you're talking about the brain and human limits, you know, isn't it dangerous to surpass those limits? You know, maybe aren't those limits there for, for a good reason? And the answer is of course, yes. And it is possible to do harm if you push past your limits in, a, you know, a bad situation, like a very, very hot day. But in general, I think the safety margin is pretty early. And, my, and the example I give then is Brandon Hendrickson. Four minutes is where his body thinks the limits are. Eight minutes and 35 is where they actually are. So one of the anecdotes you used to tell is sort of the Red Bull study where they were doing some work with Jesse Thomas, Tim Johnson, amongst others, testing electrode stimulation essentially to the brain to determine if that would actually give them some kind of benefit in, in track-based cycling time trials. And Jesse had a comment or a quote in the midst of it. And he said, you can do all of this shit, but it all comes down to two guys on a bike trying to beat each other. As he and Tim Johnson kind of 
went neck and neck to try to get the fastest time in the time trial and ultimately kind of traded spaces. One time Tim won, one time Jesse won. And as you unveil in the book, ultimately they were they won at times when they didn't get the stimulation <laughs> where they were sort of the the placebo effect was in in play. And so and learning that and and you have other kind of examples like that in the story, you know, to what extent does that outcome make you want to sort of throw your hands up, you know, and say, you know, this pursuit is kind of silly, right? Competition beats electrodes to the brain, self-talk beats what sports drink you have in your bottle. You know, the pursuit of fundamentals in your personal marathon might have beaten the computer brain games you were playing as as you were trying to kind of improve your mental endurance. So at what point does all of those kind of trade-offs make you want to just say, you know what, this is a silly pursuit? And in one of your interviews you said, I've been, you know, uh, on a decade pursuit of kind of building an icing factory. <laughs> and so I, I would imagine it's not that way for you, but I'm just curious kind of your reaction when you have those moments where you're like, man, throw the science out the window. It's just two guys beating each other. No, you know, it's, uh, I think that's a great, great point to bring up. And, and actually I, I agree with you more than, more than you might expect. Um, cause to me, like you talk about the brain, electric brain stimulation and, and actually since that book, since the book was written, there's actually been some more research, which is, uh, which bolsters the case. Like the research has been kind of back and forth. It wasn't clear it was working. I'm now more confident that it actually really does work. And to me, that's bad news, not good news. Cause it's, it's, well, I mean, it's, it's mixed news. It's, it's, it's bad news from, from the perspective of what sport's all about. Um, so I find this stuff fascinating. Like, and again, I, I said before, I wrote the book, not as a training manual, as a kind of a, you know, it's a curiosity driven exploration of the nature of limits. Like what all of us, right? Like we're, we go out and run, if not every day, then, then close to it. What, what are we out there for? We like, we don't have to run. We don't have to push ourselves and we certainly don't have to race. But there's something fun about it, and it's not necessarily just winning. It's you know because ninety nine point nine 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 percent of us are not winning. We're out there pushing our own limits, and there's there's something fascinating about that. And 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 so I'm interested in understanding the nature of those limits, and I and I'm interested in, or not even and, and not when I say understanding, I don't mean like having the be all and end all answer to what they are, but but exploring what it means to be pushed to your limits in different contexts, whether it's climbing a mountain or, or, or free diving or, or running or, or whatever the case may be. And so when I see something like electric brain stimulation and I say, you're telling me that if you just run a weak current through my brain that changes my perception of how hard the exercise is, I can go farther and faster. Wow. That tells me, that tells me that there's a reserve there. Now that tells me that even without electric brain stimulation, when I feel that I can't go any farther, that means that's a lie. I actually can. Whether I can access it, I don't know. But it's it changes it changes my my relationship with the feeling of of limits to know that if I did electrocute myself, I would go farther, and that tells me that I shouldn't back off or I shouldn't give up because I'm not about to die because my muscles can keep going. So so for me, it's it's really interesting to to think of it in in, in those sorts of contexts of understanding the nature of limits. Now, th- you know, th- this has been a, a really nice conversation and most of the interviews I've done have been nice too but the truth is and I, and I totally understand why that what most people want to understand is okay how can I apply this to get faster in my next marathon and you know and I think there are you know like I said I, I'll, I'll say self-talk and I also think just as I was just saying I think just understanding the nature of limits helps to 
give you the option of pushing on what through what feels like physical limits. But to me, it's it's fascinating and interesting, totally independent of any practical applications. This is just trying to understand why it is that I run um, and, and what it is that holds me back or pushes me forward. And so, you know, another point, thing that I just to add to or to finish that thought it's like if I look back at what I've been writing about for the last 10 years and yeah it's it's sort of the icing factory of like forget the cake let's just worry let's just write about what beet juice does and 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 you know what caffeine does and and what electric brain stimulation does I'm interested in all of those things partly mostly because they tell us something about the, the way uh, the brain works also because people are interested in them too and that's how I make my living you know, as, as the, you know, to, to be totally honest, but I've written probably what, like 20, 30 more articles about beet juice. I've never even tasted it. I don't know what beet juice tastes like. I, I'm, I'm not interested. That's not what my running is about. I've never taken caffeine before a race. I don't drink coffee. I'm, I, you know, I don't, I'm not morally opposed to it or anything. I just, I don't like coffee. So I don't drink coffee. I've never taken a caffeine pill. So to me, yeah, it's like, what is the meaning of all those things compared to, if I want to get faster, I need to run more mileage. And you know, that's, I, it's, it's simpler. If I, I forget taking a pill, I just need to train more. Like it's, you know, I'm busy these days and, it, or, and, you know, maybe push a little, you know, do, do, do a 30 miler. Although I could probably do more. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, need, I need to do a 30 miler fasted while carrying a load of bricks on my back. And Don't give me ideas, Alex. Don't give me any more ideas. <laughs> Yeah. No, but so, so I don't know, hopefully that answers your question, but I, I, I agree. It's like, uh, I think it's fun to think about these things and it's fun to try some of these things, but ultimately I think that the real fascination is understanding these things and then taking it back and understanding that, man, if you want to go faster, you just got to run or, or, uh, you know, or, 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 or push your, push your limits in various ways. Yeah. Your point is a good one, which is that exploring these limits help us understand the fact that we're nowhere near ours and then that opens our mind to the possibilities through belief of having big things, you know, be accomplished, but it doesn't set aside the fundamentals. It doesn't set aside the, the value of putting yourself in a place where you can just beat somebody. Right. <laughs> and so it's sort of the, this and part of it to me, that makes it really fascinating. It's not just, understanding these limits, but it's also pairing this with everything else we know about what makes people go faster that makes it really yeah. powerful. That, that, that's exactly, exactly it. And I was saying before my answer is to, to most questions is oh, a little bit of both. And it's <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, I, I don't need to write another, you know, a version of a dance marathoning or, or, you know, whatever the, the, your, your training book of choice is that there are tons of books by people who have tons of experience training people who can give interesting and, and different perspectives. Uh, so, my, you know, my, my, my view isn't like, here's my book, which is going to tell you that you don't need to worry about all those silly training books and you can just believe and achieve. It's like, no, read the training books to understand how to train. But if you, if you kind of want to reflect on the nature of the limits and, and think carefully about what it is that, that, that drives you and what it is that, that you encounter out on the road and maybe get some, some useful insights on how to, how to sort of sharpen your mental game. Cause I do, like I said, it's not, it's not like totally impractical. And if I had a time machine, the one thing, the, the number one thing I would tell my twenty-year-old self is, you know, get a sports psychologist to try and uh, to try and work on some of this stuff because I think it really does matter when you're starting to when you're trying to really push the edges of, of your limits. But it's it's not the it's not the cake. It's 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 the icing. So last question, and then I know you got to go be a dad here at at five thirty Eastern, <laughs> which I appreciate because yeah. I have to do the same. 
the next what's the next book i mean not necessarily for you but on this topic what would you want to write or what do you want to read about on this topic where do you think the the next frontier takes us yeah it's a really interesting question i mean there, there's a couple parts to that question what's next for me is 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 a really big question that i i'm i'm i haven't even started to wrestle with cuz in a sense it feels like this was the book that I kind of spent the first 40 years of my life preparing to write. Um, and, and I don't know. So like, what's the next thing I would write about endurance? I, I, I don't know. Is it better for me to, 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 to cast, cast aside for, a, for a new field? Um, or, or can I find something that's sufficiently new and different to say? So like the answer to that, and it's, it's sort of the answer to both parts of the question is I don't know what comes next. Um, in terms of like the, the next book that I want to read, you know, in this, in this area, it, it's interesting. Like I, this may be colored by the fact that, you know, I've, I was on Twitter, uh, today just looking at, and, you know, someone posted a quote from one of my books and, and, you know, one of the scientists, some of the scientists whose disparate views I, I quoted in the book just got into a big fight over whose theory was right. And it was this vicious long running fight. And it's this fight that goes on periodically. And I, I find it very disheartening to see all this, this sort of food fighting about which theory is right. I was like, I wish everyone could see the commonalities in their, in their theories and, and kind of move the field forward instead of trying to tear each other down. Um, so it's like, I, I think there's, some exciting advances to come in the field, but I think it, the, I don't see them like in the hor- over on the horizon in the next few years. I think there, there needs to be some new thinking come into the field or some people whose, whose egos aren't invested in, in their current theories. So you and I both so, will be rushing out to buy the Kipchoge autobiography when he writes it. <laughs> well, I, I, what I was actually just going to finish by saying is if you ask me what the next book I want to read about running is, I want to read some biographies or autobiographies of great runners. To, to, to get away from the N equals 100 and let's go to the N equals one and find out what it is that have made some of the great runners tick. That's good. You know, and obviously I've read a lot of them, but I, I, there's a lot that, that I haven't read. Someone someone just recommended to me like Charlie Spedding's autobiography. And it's like, what was Spedding, like a 210 guy or something in the 80s from the UK? Yeah, but it's a great book. I read that one. Have you read the Buddy Edelin story, the the, the Betty, Edelin, Betty Edelin's one? No, that's another one that um, I've heard, heard is amazing. And, and amazing. Yeah. So it's like, well, I feel like that's that, that that's an area where I could, uh, where I, I will have fun reading them, whatever I get out of them, but where I could also really pick up some interesting insights. Well, whoever comes after you writing this book has an incredibly high threshold to get over. You have set the bar, in my opinion, uh, about as high as it can be. And I couldn't give a better recommendation to this book to anyone. I've, I've As I said, I've tried to press it in the hands of everybody that I know, telling them that this is a great way for you to start to look at your sport and things that Chris and I have been saying as coaches to our athletes, they frequently just gloss over sometimes or, or don't want to hear, but the way you break down each of those limits in their different categories and then tell the stories about them really pulls the reader in, in a way of which I have read a lot of running books in my time. And it's, it's, it's phenomenal. I know Chris feels the same way. So thank you for that again. Well, thanks, guys. And I really, really appreciate this sort of fun and wide-ranging conversation. Thanks, Alex, for joining. Everybody, go get the book now. Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. You can buy where books are sold. You can also follow follow Alex at Sweat Science on Twitter 
or go to his website, alexhutchinson.net and find out all about Alex. So thanks again, Alex. All right. We hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. So there you go. Alex Hutchinson, everybody. Go get the book now. And that's a wrap on this episode. This has been episode 64 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.